0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Modern Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Stephen Wolfram. Stephen is the founder and CEO of the software company Wolfram Research. He is the mind behind Wolfram Mathematica and the Wolfram Alpha answer engine. This might sound like hyper-nerd speak that you don't ever interact with, but Wolfram Alpha actually forms the basis for the answer engine behind Siri and Alexa, so his work is probably a lot closer to your life than you give it credit for. Now, just as interesting as what Stephen does is how he does it. He's tracked every email that he's sent over the last 30 years, also tracked every mouse movement, every keystroke, and has recorded all of these down using computer software that his company has built himself. His approach to personal productivity and analytics is probably without match on the planet and i'm so excited to get to present this fascinating insight into the life of an incredibly influential figure hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as i did there is some cool experiments that you can do yourself on the wolfram alpha website that will be linked in the show notes below if you enjoy this episode please share it with a friend it makes me incredibly happy This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, they will give you a new one for free. Get a 15% discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cdwisdom and using the code MW15 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash letter C, letter D, wisdom, and MW15 at checkout. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, please welcome the very wise Stephen Wolfram. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined today by Stephen Wolfram. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. I uh, am particularly excited to speak to you today. Um, One of your blog posts that was released earlier this year, Seeking the Productive Life, was shared around in a number of different group chats. And when that happens, when it appears in a few different spheres of awareness, I think it's usually a pretty good... uh, pretty good idea that it's uh it's going to be something interesting so i wanted to talk to you today about your approach to productivity and personal analytics before we actually get into what it is that you do the the work you do is is interesting but the way that you do it is almost as fascinating to me which is no, a I, I like
1: to think it's interesting i've been doing it for for decades so <laughs> it better be interesting or i'm or i'm uh, should be embarrassed but yes uh, uh, the um but yeah, you know, the main thing is that I like to do the things I like to do, and I like to not be distracted by things I don't need to be distracted by. And so I tend to build all these systems to try to automate as much as possible to try to, you know, be as concentrated as I can, and actually doing the work I want to do. And so I've, I've, uh, you know, I would say the, the number one tool, which is not for everybody that I've built to get um, My work done is I built a company over the last 32 years that has, you know, 800 people in it, then it's sort of uh, intended to be a machine for taking ideas that I have and turning them into real things. And so that uh, but one of the things that is probably more uh, uh, sort of generalizable is one of the ways that I tend to work is I'm, I'm, you know, in any given day, I'm trying to create things, I'm trying to have ideas, and I'm trying to turn them into real things. And uh, I tend to follow the sort of approach of uh, spending a lot of my time doing what I tend to call thinking in public, which means, you know, you're working with a team of people. And some people would imagine that, you know, when you're going to go figure out what to do, you go off on your own, you hide away, you figure out what to do. This is not what I tend to do. What I tend to do is it's like, I'm doing some meeting with the people who are involved. And that's the actual time when we figure out what we're going to do. It's not something which is happening sort of behind the scenes and i found that you know i have been a remote ceo for 29 years now which is another bizarre feature so most of my uh uh you know interaction with people is screen sharing plus audio i usually avoid video so like the experience we're having right now is unusual for me i'm i'm usually a uh, you know i've got audio yeah I'm, uh, you know, sharing the thing that we're both talking about, yep. but, uh, not I'm not your face. seeing the, the, <laughs> uh, the people, um, uh, it, it's, um, and then, you know, I, I, what I like to do is to try and, you know, we're trying to figure something out. Like today, there were several different meetings that I had about different kinds of things and we figured out some things. Um, and that's always, you know, it's very satisfying and, you know, one has to have a, what I'm typically doing is I'm typing into one of our notebook documents and uh, trying to, you know, set out what it is we figured out and so on, and then notes get taken and so on, and then it gets turned into something where something real can happen from it. I understand. That's a, um, you know, I, I like that. Uh, it's a I I also tend to, have, maybe it's an eccentricity, but it's turned out to be pretty interesting. We've We've publicly live-streamed a lot of these internal meetings that we've had, so in the last year we've probably live stream 300 hours of these things. And that's a fascinating dynamic because uh, I originally started doing it just because I thought these meetings were interesting. They range from very intellectual stuff to very gritty stuff about software engineering. Uh, I just think these are interesting and, you know, why not uh, have other people be able to sort of share the fun? But it's turned out we've ended up with, uh, you know, people join the, the live chat and so on. And we get a lot of sophisticated users of our products and a lot of other people who are experts in various kinds of things. And we get real-time feedback, which is pretty interesting.
0: So you're and, crowd, uh, crowdsourcing some solutions almost?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there there are things that have actually gone into our products that were suggested by people in the live chat. And, you know, it's a very fast process. I mean, we could go and we could say, you know, okay, we, you know, world, you know, here's what we're going to do. And a week later, people could respond to it. But actually, this is like people are hearing what's going on. Real-time. Typing things and uh it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, to me, being able to do those kinds of figuring things out, uh, sort of live and in public, it makes, perhaps egotistically, the things feel a little bit more meaningful to me.
0: I understand. That, you know, you, you can takes, see-
1: there's a process of figuring something out and you put a lot of effort into it. And it's kind of fun if that effort is actually archived. And, I'm not, you know, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't watched any of them <laughs> since yeah. I made them. But I know other people have. And, um, uh, you know, and I think it's, for, for me, you know, part of, you know, the things I've figured out over the last few decades about particularly about software design and language design and so on. And uh, this is my way of kind of helping educate about those things is, you know, you can actually see this happen and you can see what the process is.
0: There's a... I, I, There's a term that one of the guys behind the Modern Wisdom Project, George, uses when he talks about evergreen content like that. So this is a discussion that I'm having with you. I've always said I would do this podcast even if nobody tuned in because I want to have these discussions with interesting people. However, George describes it as you at scale. And I think that that's a nice way to describe what it is that you're doing because that meeting would be going on anyway. The only That's difference correct. is the only difference is the fact that now other people get to benefit one of the things that you touched on right at the beginning there some of the the listeners may be taken away on the whirlwind that is wolfram and and, and what the, what the, the company does but um, one of the things you touched on that I thought was really interesting was that you are a remote CEO which means that you do the vast majority of your work at home I think you've cited that you 're in the office for hours per year as opposed yeah. to days or weeks per year um, but Contrasted with that, you have this uh quite sort of crowdsourced, very interactive working style. I think when people think about the at-home CEO, if you were to say that, you kind of think of this Tony Stark kind of down in the dungeon on his own, tinkering and working away, especially when you then couple it with the fact that a lot of what your company does, uh, in as much as me as a good avatar for the layperson can understand, is pretty hardcore mathematics and programming. Um, you think down in the dungeon, working on their own, uh, it's sort of, and then every so often revealing something to the rest of the team. Um, is this a, a quirk of your personality, or is this simply how you found to be the most optimal way to get stuff done?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've done different things at different times in my life. This is a really good way to get stuff done, although it probably depends on my personality that it works. I mean, so, for example, when I was first, um, uh, well, after I started the company uh, for about 10 years, I kind of put myself on sort of (laughs) pseudo-sabbatical working on a basic science project. And that project I did in a completely reclusive mode. I wasn't talking to anybody. I was just, it was me. uh, uh, I happened to be in a a high-up room rather than down in the basement. But uh, other than that, it was uh, pretty much caged and, uh, and working on my own, and I, I was, you know, I, I, my schedule was sort of shifted around, so I was working typically from, I would, I would do stuff with the company in the afternoons, and then I would go off and, and start working on my basic science project. Sort of, uh, I'd go off and do things. I, during the time when I did the basic science project, I had some kids, and you know, I was doing things with the kids for a while, and then I would go and, uh, starting at like eight or nine in the evening, work until six in the morning, uh, doing basic science, basically <laughs> on my own. And uh, it was a, you know, that was a definitely a tenacity testing process to go do that for a decade, basically. And, um, you know, I got it finished. I produced this book called New Kind of Science, which has had all kinds of consequences in the world. But uh, it was, um, uh, you know, it was definitely a pretty intense way to work. So I I changed the way I worked after that and um, decided that I would try doing this much more, you know, with with my internal group kind of this thinking in public type mode. And it's great. Now, it depends on the fact that you have people that you're working with, where there's sort of, uh, I don't know whether it's good chemistry, but where people kind of know what to expect. Um, and, you know, it's probably, it's probably, I don't know, one could probably figure it out. I I should know the analytics of this from my, um, uh, from, uh, my live streams, but I'm guessing there's probably 150 people who sort of make an appearance in some live stream or another. Yep. So that's kind of the, out of maybe 800 people in the company, so that's probably the you know th- that's the set of people where they kind of uh, are in the right flow to be able to be involved in these kinds of live stream type meetings
0: it's It's um, interesting that you say that they need to know what to expect from you and kind of you do vice versa. If you were, I think a lot of people have just come off a podcast with Robert Green and we're talking about inter office politics and people having to wear masks and all sorts of things like that. Most people's jobs are a um, combination of the solo warrior, perhaps cubicle work, typical knowledge work, emails backwards and forwards, and then some meetings, some collaborative meetings. And for the meetings, a lot of people have to play the role of whatever it is, the boss, the subordinate, the this, the that, the the other. Um, I imagine if you were having to play a role to 150 people over a live stream for hours and hours every day, it would be exhausting. So I, I completely understand what you mean, that you're able to have sort of brain to mouth to screen with as little friction as possible. And I think that actually probably quite nicely leads us on to your approach to productivity overall, because having done as... Sophisticated an assessment as I can of the most sophisticated approach to productivity that I've seen. Lack of friction kind of appears to be one of the one of the things yeah. that that's a, a, a meta narrative about it. So would you? Yeah, be I think a, that's right. Would you be able to yeah, just I mean, look, explain your your approach to your personal infrastructure?
1: Yeah, well, okay. So, but, but, but I mean, just to say one more thing about about what you were just referring to because I think it's interesting. I mean, the the fact is, you know, my company is sort of constructed to be a direct communication kind of place. So, you know, we've uh, another feature that makes the remote CEOing thing less weird or even more weird is that, you know, I set this example, you know, nearly 30 years ago of being a remote CEO. So that means that the majority of people who work at my company work remotely.
0: Are they all at home as well? Or in their own office or whatever, all, yeah.
1: all kinds of random places. I don't even know where they are. I mean, occasionally there'll be some interesting things. Somebody will say, "Well, there's a you know there's a volcano erupting that so you the can the see." to a shark or
0: something like
1: that. Yeah, right. And it's it's um uh, and then you find out where they are, which I, I don't typically pay that much attention to. Yeah. Um. And uh, you know, but I think that's a um the the fact that one can develop a company culture where people are able to actually say what they think, and you know, on these live streams they're very unvarnished. And so people will be, uh, uh, you know, saying sometimes people will get quite passionate about things. And, you know, they'll attack me and tell me I'm a total idiot and so on. And it's, it's um, but this is the way that I like to work, because I found, you know, it turns out, you can have the whole sort of posturing of uh, that often happens in many kinds of business settings, but it's like a big waste of time. And so long as you can, the Yeah, right. I mean, so, so so long as you can handle directness directness is much more efficient and and also it helps people i think from a management point of view you know knowing where they stand you know if you say it's good they actually believe you. you mean it's good and because <laughs> yeah. uh, you'll say it's bad if it's bad um but uh you know in in terms of my my personal uh, mode of of um of doing things i i mean you know one thing is the question of what projects I do because that's sort of the starting point of uh, how one is productive. I mean I've been lucky enough that I've basically been able to build a technology stack for for three decades um, and much of what I do is something that will fit into that technology stack. there are things that you know fortunately it's a broad range of things it's a broad range of kinds of different intellectual areas and so on but when I imagine oh I'll well, Do something, you know, completely different. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, uh, write a a a play or something. Okay, if I did that, I have no idea, you know, that would be a big
0: need a new system. uh, I
1: have no idea what to do with it. Um, so you know, first step is kind of having a, a, you know, there's a set of things I like to do, and I've sort of built these matrices into which to put the individual things that I try to do. Like, you know, I try and build these sort of uh, computational intelligence systems where I got this big kind of thing to put that into. I like doing uh, uh, kind of historical uh, writing about historical biography and things like that. I have another kind of matrix into which I can put things like that. And I try to avoid doing things which are kind of, um, uh, which don't fit into any matrix I have, because I know that the kind of cost of, uh, of getting something out, if it isn't in some some sort of matrix is, is really high. So I you know, that's, that's sort of one, one step in terms of the, in in terms of uh, kind of my my uh you know sort of daily life i tend to be a very uh uh you know it's very scheduled it has very it's very kind of structured and i've built you know all these systems for sort of prioritizing I, you know uh, I, in a sense i'm i i cheat because i have a whole company that's that's dealing with things like prioritizing what i do so yes. this is not um uh but you know we've had to build these systems for i would say the the number one meta system is, I have all these ideas all the time, like I've had several ideas today, which which will turn into, um, you know, which have the potential to turn into lots of work. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the my, the thing I like to do is to have ideas that actually turn into something real, um, I've, I find it very frustrating, just to have ideas and not have anything happen with them. So, you know, the, it's, it's a question of how do you build a system where you can make concrete those ideas, And, um, and then um, uh, actually um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, have the right project management and the right kind of flows to make that happen. But, you know, in terms of my own, um, uh, you know, like, I, I like to work, I, I, you know, the work I do is what I choose to do. And so I like to be doing that as much as I can. So like, I also, you know, I like to get exercise every day. And so like, you know, the, um, if I'm, uh, uh, you know, I set up a treadmill so that I can have a you know type on my computer while I'm uh, walking on the treadmill and that works fine. I also typically do meetings. I usually try to uh, try to get some um, meetings that I think are going to be a bit frustrating scheduled for the time when I'm on the treadmill. <laughs> Does anyone then, know?
0: Is anyone listening? Yes, can yes, they I mean, hear certainly you like plodding away and they think that's a signal? That Stephen thought this was going to be a shit meeting. <laughs> but if there's anyone, if anyone of Stephen's executives are listening, and you hear him plodding away on the thing, that's because he thought it was going yeah, to be a boring yeah. meeting.
1: Well, it's not so much boring; it's usually frustrating. It's usually like something is oh, going so wrong. You need
0: to, you need to get a little bit of energy out.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Because it's like, like you know. Why aren't we managing to do this? What's going on? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, okay, I can increase by half a mile an hour. <laughs> <past my work. laughs> that's, a, that's a much better way to manage my uh, my frustration outlet, than it would be to growling at people.
0: Fantastic. Um, I absolutely the, I absolutely love um, it. Um, I the, think if, if you were if you were a layperson and you were to think, well, I'm the sort of person who likes to work. I want to maximize my ability to do the work that I like to do. Not only does it feel like what I'm gonna guess is close to your highest calling in life, but also something that's enjoyable as well. Um, You would make it as easy as possible to do as much of that as possible, as as high a velocity as possible with as little waste. And reading through the blog post, which will be linked in the show notes below for the listeners who want to check it out. And I I suggest that you do because it's a real monster. Um, But (laughs) it really is. Um, The particular setup that you have, which is... Uh, like you say, these matrices, as, as you've described them, which are kind of these systems, I guess, um, people would, in more sort of common uh, common terminology, where you have a desk which moves from sitting to standing very easily at the touch of a button. You've optimized the ergonomics. I think I'm right in saying that you're left-handed and you've realized yes. that you can, you use a older style well, roller mouse, right? Rather than a trackpad. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. Usually when I'm at my desk, yes, because I found that that's somewhat faster. I mean, you know, the point is because I record all this personal analytics about myself, most of it, you know, for the last 30 years, I've recorded tons of things like well, obviously all the emails I send and receive. And then probably for the last 20 years, I think I've recorded every keystroke I type and I record kind of an image of the screen that I've, uh, that I've in, in front of me and things like this. And most of the time, I don't look at any of this. Right? Most of the time it just goes, it just it appears in a blog post
0: in at the start of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right,
1: well, right. It, 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 you know, and occasionally I'll look at it, but you know, something like is it faster for me to use a left-handed mouse or a trackpad? I can answer that question because just go look at the data and it takes me, you know, probably 15 minutes to go answer that question because I've got different computers with different setups and I just can see can how fast the, things work. You can compare the two. To, yeah. I think right. I'm ra- right
0: in saying that you've done a third of a million emails since 1989 and more than 100 million no. case strokes.
1: No, no, no! Much more than that. I've done. Um, let's see. I get a thing that shows me every month. So I've sent uh, eight hundred and fifty thousand emails. Ah, um, uh, this blog post so,
0: from two thousand twelve.
1: Yes, right, right. Yeah, yes, so yes, yes, yes. You've really yeah, stepped so, it up.
0: You've done half a million in the last. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> in the last yes
1: seven that's years. right. Yeah, it's it's no. In fact, the the number of emails that I've uh, that I receive has gone up. The number that I send has gone up. Yep. Um. It's uh. Yeah. I mean, that's another. You know another feature of at least my life is you need to learn to make decisions quickly otherwise you just go totally bonkers mm-hmm. so you know i'm getting hundreds of emails every day and you know uh, it's great when one of them is spam it's pretty rare that it's spam because that's Archive. just a quick delete um but you know most of the time they're emails that i sort of should get in some sense and a lot of the time they're things which are some kind of decision like do we do this do we do that whatever and you know one of the things i've tried to train myself to do is just make these decisions quickly and it you know uh, experience helps a lot i mean one of the challenges in um, in the business that i'm in so to speak is what do you delegate versus what you just do yourself and you know there's things where i just know pretty much what to do it's going to take me 10 minutes to do it i could delegate it but it's going to take somebody a week to try and figure out what to do and there's a chance that they won't do the right thing and so what i tend to do my solution to this is that I'll tend to do this kind of uh, thinking in public uh, way of, of, you know, doing it. I'll say, yes, I'll do this, but you're going to watch what I do. And so that way you learn, you know, how to do it for the next time. Um, And, uh, you know, that that works pretty well. And it's it's something um, uh, also for me, you know, in in, uh, you know, running a software company or something, you might think that the CEO of a software company of our size would never like look at the underlying you know server code or whatever else <laughs> but the fact is you know from time to time it's just easier for me to just look at it yeah. and it also you know the dynamic with the team for example tends to be you know you might think oh my gosh that's totally traumatic to have the ceo go look at something that some junior person was supposed to work on yeah. and um you know and i suppose sometimes it is traumatic if something really stupid was done but that's the rare case yeah. it's usually it was actually hard and the main thing that is communicated is the CEO cares about what this junior person does and isn't totally clueless about what's involved in doing it. And that's a, you know, that's a positive message, so to speak. And I think this, this, um, you know, this theory that you should, I mean, I, I tend to delegate whatever I can delegate. That's one of my sort of principles of, of, uh, uh, of leading a productive life is delegate what I can delegate, but don't delegate too much. And there are cases where one sort of instinctively delegates things. I mean, I've over the last decade I think I've learned more about this. You know, there are cases where it's like, oh, this is a trivial thing. This is something about some uh, you know, random network issue, whatever. Let me just delegate that. And turns out that's just a bad idea because given the experience I have and so on, I can solve it in ten minutes.
0: Are there any and, metrics that you use for that, or is it just experience? You said you've stepped just it experience. up recently.
1: Yeah, it's just experience. And I think, you know, one of the things that's complicated is because, you know, I've been in like the software business and so on for a disgusting number of decades now, (laughs) you know, I just know a lot of stuff and it's it's um. You know, and it's and I've gotten better at problem solving and debugging things and so on over the years. And there's not really a substitute for an extra few decades of debugging experience.
0: I I couldn't I uh, couldn't I couldn't agree more. So uh, to draw a little bit of an analogy between two industries that I probably guessed you never thought would would be analogous, um, I run club nights, so I'm a club promoter, uh, running nightclubs, late night industry and stuff like that. One of the things that's interesting, myself and my business partner are the two MDs of that company, and there's a couple of other partners, but there isn't a person in that company who hasn't started out as a flyer boy at the bottom. And it means that I understand the craft of every single layer all the way up. And because the company is inherently quite flat, even now at 800 members of staff for us, a lot of them part-time and a lot of them a lot less technical than yours, but um, because it's very flat and because our ascension through it required us to learn every step of the way and then model what we did and then distill that back down to the guys that are below us. If push comes to shove, and I get asked a question about pretty much anything, the likelihood is that I've either got a similar experience or the very experience that that person's talking about. And I think to any business owners or uh, um, uh, entrepreneurs in waiting that are listening, I think earning your craft and getting the bread and butter of your actual business understood to a high, high fidelity is a, a skill that's, that's super, super useful. And when you think about CEO, you think about this, especially remote CEO. If you're not the guy that's in the basement that's working and tinkering, you're the guy that rocks up in the boardroom, like on his private helicopter once every whatever for like the AGM. Like picks up his picks up his dividend and then goes back to the Seychelles or something like that. I don't think either of there's not much romance in 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 that person. It's cool, right. it's cool to have a CEO, I think personally to have one that gets stuck in like yourself. Right.
1: I mean, you know, my, my principle about companies, I've told this to many entrepreneurs, is, you know, on day one the CEO has to do everything. And gradually you understand more and more of what the company is doing, and then you can gradually, you know, hire people to whom you can delegate those things. But, you know, I know in the history of my company, everything, every area that I didn't really understand didn't get done very well. And that's partly it's for two reasons. One, because I wasn't there, you know. I think it's partly a question of how the motivation of people, it's like, oh, the CEO doesn't care about this. We're not going to put so much effort into it. And it's partly just it's harder for me to kind of assess it and clean it up and and so on. So I I think it's a it's a really it's a very good principle that one should, you know, understand, you know, every aspect of I mean, I have a pretty complicated company, but I try and understand, you know, every aspect of what we do. And I also know very well that if there's some part I don't understand, that's the part that's going to get messed up. I mean, the one one thing that happens in a company like mine, which is a tech company, is that, you know, I've also been pushing for another thing, which is automate everything I can. So, you know, we've we've got only 800 employees, but, you know, the productivity that we manage to generate is a a vast multiple of what you would expect from that number. Because over the years, you know, any process that I've seen where I can say, why do we have 20 people working on this for six months? This is something that can be automated. And well, it's going to take some effort to automate it, but once it's automated, you can just crank it out all the time.
0: Scalability, and, uh, right?
1: Yeah, right. And it's it's. Um, I mean, that's been look, that's been the story of of what we've built, you know, as a company. That's you know, the products we built and so on help other people do that too. But the you know, the customer number one for these things is ourselves. Yeah. And uh, you know, I also you know, I also make a point. I build a lot of systems. Um, Sometimes I build them myself. Sometimes I'll prototype them and get other people to finish them um, that are for my own personal sort of productivity of, uh, you know, doing all these things of, I don't know, like, for example, I have a simple system that monitors the history of my um, uh, inbox You know, how how many pending emails do I have? How many unread emails and so on? Now, you might think, well, that's just a snapshot you can get by seeing how many emails you have. But for me, it's very useful to see that time flow of to see, you know, this week it's been growing. Oh, there's this, you know, then there's a big cliff because I actually did a bunch of work, you know, uh, processing these things and so on. I mean, that's a that's a whole um, Whole other dynamic
0: i wanted I- to uh, I, I did want to get on to your very special travel clock but before i get to that there's one thing that i noticed in your uh in the article that you talked about your your personal infrastructure you use a term that says any flat surface on your desk being a potential stagnation point for accumulating yes. piles of stuff and that is such a universal truth that and yeah. anyone who's listening like look unless you're a, a neat freak Look at your desk, and if there's spare, like, flat space, there's stuff on it. Like, I'm looking at mine now. I'm looking around you, and there's, like, a set of AirPods, like, a a diffuser that I've not used in months. There's, like, a coaster, like, an external hard drive. So your um, actual physical infrastructure in terms of the way that you have your desk set up is to minimize that as well, right? Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. No, I have, you know, one of my little hacks there is I have a, you know, I have a a fancy old wooden desk that I've used for for, for decades. It's some, but it has these pullouts that I had put in at the front. So, you know, there's the surface of the desk, which really just has keyboard and, you know, the monitors and things like that. And I admit it has a pile of books on it right now, which it probably shouldn't have. Um, Stephen, come on. It's some, Well, the problem with it, you know, this is the problem. I happen to be working on some historical thing I was doing the last couple of days. And the problem with historical, you know, research is it tends to involve physical books. And you kind of have to put them somewhere. They're either on the floor or they're on your desk. So these ones are on my desk. The good news about these books is once this piece is finished, which it will be in the next day or so, those books will go back back and get reshelved. Um, but, uh, you know, but what I do to, to try and sort of minimize stagnation, desk stagnation, so to speak, is I just have these pullouts in the front of the desk. And so, you know, if I need to actually, well, eat my lunch or, um, you know, sign a document or, or, or look at a book, actually, mm-hmm. you know, just pull them out at the front of the desk and, uh, do that. But I can't leave them pulled out because then I couldn't um, get in you the know, way. The, the, right. And so, so it kind of forces me to, you know, after I'm done with it, you know, clear it off, push it back in. I
0: totally and get it. A,
1: um, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a nice, um, it's, it's a little hack. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've gradually accumulated a lot of these kind of little hacks over time. Um, I mean, another one that I tend to, which you alluded to, is kind of um, uh, like, you know, I have a, a sleep clock that I that is, um, it's just a piece of code, Wolfram Language code, that just puts up an interface. That you know, I press a button that says I'm going to sleep now. It starts a count up timer that I can see and it has the time and the count up timer, and then it also sends a message to uh uh I actually where does it send a message to? It sends a message to some system, which anyway ends up with a thing that lets my uh assistant know kind of when I went to sleep, and then if I'm in some weird time zone, they can kind of predict, oh, we'll be up again in in you know eight X hours or something. Hours. I mean, um, that um,
0: So it's just for me to hear that you have. Obviously, I'm going to guess. Compared with some of the stuff that you guys do, that will be that piece of code will be like two plus two equals four. Um, yes, but, <laughs> but the fact that you're able to create, you think I have this particular productivity problem in my life. I also have either the personal capacity or the t- capacity within my company to fix this problem. It must be a little bit like being a kid in a playground sometimes for you, where you're like, Oh, I like this this is a small problem that I've encountered and what have we been talking about so far that when you do come up against things, we model the issue, create a solution, and then just scale and the, the problem looks after itself. Because I'm gonna guess twenty years ago, you will have gone to bed in some weird time zone and missed a morning meeting.
1: Yes. Yes. And that's this was the fix and now you know and this fix has been uh, i haven't had to touch this fix fix in ages and that's the yeah i mean that's the you know i think this is look maybe it's something that i get from being involved in the software industry is that there are bugs in software and one of the things if you're a software ceo is when you notice a bug you report it and you try and get it fixed mm-hmm. and i think i'm i follow sort of the same principle in my personal productivity and, and life and so on yeah is you know there are these things that are obviously kind of goofy mm-hmm. and like take the time to think about it see if you can come up with a solution and then you know execute it if possible build a system that will keep keep doing that i mean you know the same thing it's like i don't know like my um computer file system for example you know i've, I've gone through i think four generations i think i worked out maybe it's five i forget in the last 40 years i've gone through some number of generations of, of computer file system and in each case it's sort of uh uh, it's optimized for the way that I'm working at that time, and people people are remarkably bad at organizing their file systems. Oh, I discovered I, I I even discovered that after I wrote this post. I mean, you know, I should I should explain that I'd been meaning to write a post about personal productivity nerdiness for ages, but but um, I actually the reason I wrote that post when I did was that we just uh, uh, we were finishing some big new version of our open language product and. My job was done basically because and it was just a matter of squashing the last bugs and then the thing would get shipped out. And of course, you know, it's supposed to take only a week, two weeks to do that. But it was taking a lot longer. And I was like, I've got to find myself something else Need to, something do to do. To, right. So I, I tap out this blog post I and mean, I found that, um, uh, you know, one of the things that happens, I, I'm a reasonably fast writer and I I really I like writing stuff and it helps me to think things through to actually write it. Um, my team has noticed recently that I have this terrible tendency of converging to always write thirteen thousand word blog posts, which <laughs> is the, um, and, and they actually have plots that oh, show God. how long it takes and the fact that it it tends to converge to that number. I'm now that I know that. Oh, really you've got the on, observation on, on, on selection that. bias
0: here. You yeah, yeah. It. Okay. 13, well, 000, think- 13,001 for all of the future ones.
1: Yeah. No, 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 no. It should, they should be shorter. They, they, you know, what, what tends to happen there, it's one of these things where it's sort of, again, a personal optimization. You can write shorter or, you know, it's actually faster to write a longer piece sometimes than to write a shorter one because I'm tend to, you know, I write them in one, it's just one, it's a single writing process and it's not, I'm not going back and revising it and refactoring it and so on. Um, and it's, uh, you know, for me, it's actually, I hadn't really understood, I maybe five or 10 years ago, I started writing a lot of blog post type things. And uh, it's a, you know, there's a lot of stuff I think about. And I, I was talking earlier about these kind of matrices to put things into, you know, back in the day, there were things that I was thinking about, but I had no place to kind of, uh, you know, no place to put these things. Like, for example, I'm quite interested in history and philosophy and things like that. And now, you know, if I, Get an idea about one of these things. I'll end up writing some blog post about it, and people will find these blog posts hopefully interesting or whatever. But there'll be a something will come out of the work that I did. It's not something where I'll just say, "Well, yes, I'll go do that research," and um, uh, you know that's all very nice, and I enjoy doing the research. But it feels a lot more produce anything output, right?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things again to try and identify some of the larger themes that we're touching on here is that there's a lot of latent potential if you don't have the right system to allow whatever it is that you're doing to emerge. Because if you didn't have the system that was sufficiently low friction for you to write the blog post, you know, whatever your, for instance, whatever your capture for articles or for tasks or for for brain dumps, and then your review system, David Allen's getting things done or a two-minute rule or whatever version of the Wolfram (laughs) language approach I'm going to guess you have... Um, if you don't have that, there is so much latent potential just sitting behind you. And I think one of the things I'm working very hard on at the moment, and listeners will have heard Tiago Forte's episode, which was a guide to digital productivity, touching on many of the things, albeit a slightly lower, uh, degree of sophistication that, that you, you do yourself. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on to before we actually get into the nitty gritty of Wolfram itself, you have a um you've mentioned about your treadmill desk which i think is fantastic and everyone needs to have a look at the way that it's set up with the the mouse pad and the resting thing but you also do um a outside laptop yeah. setup where you're able to actually get some vitamin d and get out in the air absolutely so one of the things i wanted to ask was um firstly how do you find that affects your productivity because i'm going to guess that you'll be tracking that as well and then secondly Overall, your motivation to work, that must come and go, and that must actually in itself be difficult to track. It's difficult to track where your headspace is at. And are you able to um, explain to the listeners how being out and about, whether that refuels you, whether that actually tends to take away from your work, or how how that kind of all plays in?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, this whole question about being you know, instantly on and able to like be productive quickly over the years or decades, I've gotten incredibly much better at that. So for example, I, after I spent that 10 years sort of being kind of reclusive and so on, I, um, you know, I would try to set up meetings, but I wouldn't have them like back to back and things like this. And I would find out, you know, I get into some meeting about some topic and it would be like the first 10 minutes I'd have to be telling jokes because my, my brain wasn't, you know, wasn't set for the actual topic. And gradually, over the years, I taught myself to basically be able to, you know, I, I have meetings scheduled back to back. And, you know, after I finish one, I'm going into the next one. I'm looking at the agenda and then I'm on and I'm able to you know, launch into it. Now, I also know that I have certain memory decay times. So, for example, I know if there's some meeting that has complicated stuff we figured out and we didn't get it finished. I know I have about three days to get the follow on. And then I have, you know, I'll, within three days, I'll still have the complete mental state uh, remembered. If it's more than that, I'm going to have to go look at the notes and things like this to be able to figure out what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's, for me, in terms of productivity, the ability to just go into some meeting and immediately be, yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm on, I'm understanding what's going on. Now, you know, in terms of, of personal motivation, um, you know, I think by most people's standards, I'm a very you know, even tempered kind of, um, uh, however, you know, I consider myself a procrastinator. Um, <laughs> I think others would probably not, um, but you know, there'll be things where, um, I would say that I do uh, rational procrastination to some extent in the following sense that there are things like, I don't know, there'll be, let, like, I'm going to give a talk somewhere, let's say. And there's the question of how long in advance do I prepare something? Right. And the answer is I leave it until the absolutely last minute. Um, and why do I do that? Because, for example, if I'm giving a talk somewhere, and, uh, uh, you know, the more I know about the environment in which I'm giving the talk, if I've seen the audience, things like this, the more likely I am to be able to uh, sort of do a relevant job than if I'm sitting, you know, two days earlier, trying to prepare what I'm doing. So so there's sort of forms of procrastination like that, that um, I tend to and I, you know, sometimes I will break my own rule and end up preparing something further in advance or another another case is some um, uh, product releases. And the question is you are working very hard to do a product release. And it's like, when do you write the marketing materials for the product release? Now, sometimes, sometimes I like to write them before you even start building the product, because then I know what you know, why anybody would be expected to care about this. But often, it's like you have to wait until the thing is done, basically, because otherwise, you, you just, you know, there's, you can waste a lot of cycles, um, you know, inventing things which, oh, well, actually it turns out once you've done it, you understood something different and so on. But I think in terms of this, um, you know, personal motivation, uh, look, the, the, the number one, the zeroth feature of my personal motivation is the things I do are things I really like to do. Now, you know, when you build, I do big projects, you know, I do projects that last decades and, you know, it is not the case that every micro piece inside every project is as fascinating as every other one, <laughs> but, but somehow, you know, I find the, you know, I can sort of, I, I managed to average that out. You know, I think different people uh, tend to be at different times in their lives actually optimized for different lengths of projects. Like I find, you know, at our company, for example, you know, that people who are like optimized for the 15 minute project and those people, you know, if they're in technical support, for example, it's fantastic. They'll, you know, they'll come in, some issue will come in, they'll solve it in 15 minutes, everybody will be happy, on they go. And there are other people who are optimised for, you know, the three month project. And if you feed the three month project person, the 15 minute project, they'll spend the first week, you know, preparing the structure that they need to do the project. And it's all a big disaster.
0: You could have have done done it halfway before lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: right. So I mean, I think, you know, I, I, it's one of these things where, you know, you have to be picking projects which are sort of optimized for your, uh, you know, for, for I mean, I, I wouldn't claim that every single thing that I do every single day, like this morning, I was working on some stuff that it was like, eh, it's kind of, uh, you know, I, it's not, I don't consider it the most thrilling, but yet, you know, the end kind of justifies the effort spent on it. And I find that, you know, almost anything done sufficiently well is interesting. Um, And, you know, people are always saying, oh, this is such a boring area. I can't, you know, I can't study it in whether it's in science or in technology development. You know, this is just so boring. And and it's like, no, if you actually try and think about it and you try and really understand what's going on, it will be interesting. And, uh, you know, that's that's also a a piece of self-motivation that that I use because it's what my experience has been um and you know sometimes when you do things when you think oh this is kind of boring i'm just going to skate over the top of it
0: mm-hmm.
1: um then it is boring yeah but when you actually dive in you really try to understand what's going on turns out it's actually pretty interesting and and pretty intellectually challenging or or whatever else yeah, but in I, terms of in, in terms of walking outside you know i i um, um my wife had been saying for probably 20 years that, you know, it was a good walking outside was outside was a good thing. I was like, I ignore that, you know, it doesn't, it's who cares. But um, I finally realized through some analytics that I did, to be fair, (laughs) of course, uh, of course, that it was that it was having uh, that when I happened that I was, you know, spending time outside, it happened that my resting heart rate was lower. And that was a good sign that that was worthwhile. And and I found, um, you know, I, there was the challenge I had been thinking about this for like 20 years. How can I be just walking around and you know typing on a on a computer? And I thought back. Oh, sometime in the 90s, I was thinking, oh, I'd use augmented reality, and I was trying to figure out how I could use a one-handed chord keyboard type thing, and so I had all kinds of fancy stuff. Yeah. And the technology wasn't really there for that. And then it was about um, oh, a little bit more than a year ago. I was um, at some very uh, some fancy tech event. And actually, uh, uh, an event. The, the The scenario was just really kind of funny. It was an event put on by Jeff Bezos, and he was he had a photo op that involved him walking with this robotic dog. Okay, mm-hmm. so I was um uh, so I happened to be right right there. You know, um, I think I'd just been talking to him, and and there was you know there he was with the photo op and the robotic dog, and the robotic dog wasn't that exciting. But what was really interesting to me was there was a guy just outside the frame <laughs> of the photo op. Who had this walking desk and a laptop who was controlling the robotic dog Uh, and that was that for me was the the um you know that was the winning piece of technology in this picture and so i hadn't really internalized this idea that you could really have a walking desk where you just put a laptop on a thing with a bunch of straps that look like you know somebody who's selling popcorn or something yeah yeah and um uh and you could actually type on this and i you know i should have realized this 20 years earlier because it's really a it's a trivial solution. It's, you know, it's a baby carrier.
0: It's a baby carrier turned around to the front with a laptop on it. It's the, it's similar to the story, which actually a uh, audience member, I used this uh, in a podcast a couple of weeks ago and one of the listeners messaged me and said that it's wrong, but it's the only useful example that I've got. And it's when uh, the Americans wanted to try and develop a space pen that would write upside down in zero gravity. And the Russians just used a pencil it's like yes. one of those things where you think sometimes the simplest solution. I find it so hilarious to think about you, um, around Jeff Bezos and this robotic dog, which is obviously supposed to be like the focus, the focal point of attention. And you being like, yeah, excuse me, just move the dog out of the way. Excuse me, mate. Just remind me what that strap around your neck's made of, please. That's carrying your, uh, that's yeah, carrying yeah, yeah, right. your laptop. Right. Yeah.
1: I think the, the, uh, you know, in in the, the photo op, it looks like an autonomous dog, but the most interesting thing was the guy controlling it. I mean, it was it was you know it turns out it turns out um, uh, to my surprise, it's perfectly straightforward to type on a you know if you've got this thing in front of you. Stable. I didn't know it would be straightforward to do that. Um, now you know what I found is I kind of have a hierarchy in if if I'm writing something which is really all about writing, and I'm really trying to type the maximum number of words per per minute, so to speak, then sitting at my desk is or standing at my desk is going to be the all is, is always going to be the winner. Um, you know, treadmill is a little bit less effective in terms of, you know, how fast I can type for a long period. Mm-hmm. And walking outside is, is again, a little bit less effective. But I, you know, the typical scenario for me, when I'm walking outside, I'm usually using screen sharing, um, on, and I'm in some meeting and I'll be typing a certain amount of stuff, but I won't be. It's not like when I'm writing some blog Hard post call. or something, when I'm just purely typing. And I, and I find, I mean, you know, what I tend to find is when I'm if I'm really in gear writing a blog post, then I can do it when I'm walking on a treadmill and even sometimes when I'm outside. Mm-hmm. But when I'm kind of still just getting warmed up and I haven't quite, you know, got into the, uh, into the swing of it then I have to be sitting at my desk or it doesn't really, I, I end up. a lot up, of um,
0: cognitive effort to do that. I mean, just avoiding walking into things. I'm going to guess you must have to curate the routes that you actually walk to ensure yeah, there's yeah, no yeah, obstacles I, I and stuff. Yes, I so bef- before we move on to, I'm a, conscious of time, and I know you're a very busy man. Before we move on to a couple of cool things that I want to do with Wolfram Alpha and an explanation about Mathematica as well. Um, final question I wanted to ask about your productivity. Do you think that there's, much more left in the system for you like do you think that there's more that you can squeeze out of the lemon of of sort of your life in your daily routine at the moment or do you think you're that's working close question. to capacity
1: that's an interesting question I mean I think hmm, um, you know well it's interesting because I think about what the next projects I want to do are And i'm actually a little frustrated because there are a couple of really big projects that i've been wanting to do for like 10 years or more and i really want to get the time to do them and so for me it's important to figure out can i you know squeeze the other stuff to the point where i can get these done and one of the challenges sort of a, a a a lifetime challenge is how do you end up doing new stuff because you know something like me i built a bunch of you know things i you know i've got people who, who uh, depend on the things I do, it's like we've got a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's just flowing forwards. And so I think one of the one of the sort of personal challenges and the the attitude challenges is, can one do new stuff in the light of that? Because it's very easy to say, well, I've got all this stuff, I could spend all my time just, you know, maintaining and turning the crank on things I've already built um, and things, you know, things I've already done, sort of, uh, products we built, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for whatever reason, I find it, you know, I kind of have a a great urge to go do new stuff as well. And you have to be just a little bit irresponsible to be able to do that. You have to decide, you know, I'm not going to put 100% time into this thing. I'm going to try and push it, squash it a little bit so that I have time left over to go do new things. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's some, um, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting question. I mean, I I think that, um, um, there are probably, um, um, you know, what, one question breaks into two pieces. One is, are there things that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing? And the other is the things that I am doing, can I do them more efficiently and a um,
0: good way to frame it?
1: Right. And so, you know, the, um, and you know, in the things I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing, uh, it's uh, you know that that's a complicated thing because you know you say okay there's some meeting that I'll be doing that's reviewing something or other okay I can like not do that and then there is a decent chance that that project will keep running okay but there is also a certain chance that it will go off the rails um, and so that's a you know so you have to kind of try and figure out and and some actually I did a big refactoring recently of of project review meetings of figuring out you know. To, how to aggregate different pieces so that it's one meeting that's an hour every week or two, that used to be three different meetings and so on. So I mean, there's this um, but in terms of the um, uh, Yeah, so I, I it's a good question. I have to think about that question. I don't, I, you know, if I knew, t- to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm unembarrassed in answering this question in the following sense, that if I could say to you immediately, Oh, there's this obvious inefficiency, I would be a bit embarrassed. Yeah. Because uh, um, yeah. you know it's why uh, oh, is it not started uh, already? Yeah, right. Um, but so so that's um, but so you <laughs> know I summary. think that they, yeah right. I I mean there's there's um, uh, you know, as as I work on two new big projects, um, they will have a slightly different rhythm than projects I have previously done, and so they will have their own uh, kind of. I'll, I'll it will take you know I I know that when I work on when I start doing some different kind of project there's a certain amount of turbulence at the beginning as things aren't well understood and, you know, gradually I understand what the systems are and get into the swing of it and then it then it can flow nicely.
0: I have to say, for someone who works in um, what to most people would feel like a very transactional, well-controlled, hermetically sealed environment that is code and maths, the way that you speak about the overall philosophy is a lot more the way that an artist or a musician would speak about it the, to, to do with the sensations and the, the understanding, the um, experience based uh, conception of what is going to happen, which is emerging from all of this past experience that you've had. I think there's a lot to be said as we've touched on already that just spending time under tension, as you'd refer to it in the gym of, of just, getting to grips with the bread and butter and then beginning to slowly add more and more on and expand that domain of competences is, is something that's very useful for a lot of people so final thing um wolfram alpha is an answer engine not a search engine would you be able to yes. ex- would you be able to explain to the listeners who don't understand what an answer engine is what what that means please
1: well, we, we usually like to use the term computational knowledge engine. That's our fancier term for it. <laughs> okay, but, yeah. um, you know, what it is is a, a thing where you ask it a question in natural language and it will try and compute the answer to that question. So you might ask it, I don't know, and, and you know, you can use it, it. It provides computational knowledge for Siri and for Alexa. So you, oh, yeah, you, it's, the, it's, people, the
0: basis, it's the basis of Siri and Alexa, right? Like one of the, the Well, the, comp-
1: the knowledge components, yes. Yes. So it's 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 the thing that's answering. It's not the thing that's saying, play this song. <laughs> it's the thing that's answering the question, you know, what's the population of such and such a place? Or, you know, if you type in a good party trick with Wolf Alpha is type in a first name and uh, it'll give you the the uh, mostly US data or that has some other countries as well. Um, it'll give you the number of people with that name who've been born every year in the last hundred years. Okay. So but then what it has to do, because it's actually computing things, is it knows the mortality curves for, um, for people. And so it can figure out, you know, what is the distribution of people alive today who have, you know, first name Chris, for example. Yeah. Right? So then a good party trick is um, you type in somebody's name, and it will give this distribution, it'll say most common age of a person with that name. And just because of the way statistics works, there's a pretty good chance that the person you're talking to who has that name yeah. is of that age. Yeah. So that's a uh, that's um. that's fascinating. But, uh, I mean, so so, you know, and what we're doing in, in Wolfram Alpha is we've been for the last few decades, we've been accumulating kind of knowledge about the world in computable form. So, you know, you can say, where's the International Space Station? Okay, so that's something you actually have to compute. You can't just, uh, there's not just because it moves all the Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. And uh, you have to be working out, you know, what its orbit is, and so on, and then computing the answer to that question. So what we're what we really, the the thing we've done is is mostly translating human natural language, the kinds of questions people ask into a computational language, and then using the knowledge that we built up in our knowledge base, to be able to answer those questions. I mean, kind of the goal in the end is there's a bunch of systematic knowledge that our civilization has has built up. You know, my goal, which to be fair, I've had since I was probably about 12 years old, is kind of to accumulate that knowledge in computational form and have it be the case that any question that can be answered on the basis of knowledge that's known in our civilization, we should be able to automate answering that question. That's kind of the, the goal. And, and you know, we've been able to do that in more and more domains. And that's um. so that that's, that's the story of Wolf Malfur and you know, I use it like, um. oh, I'll use it probably today, I'll go type in sunburn. And it'll tell me because it knows where I am. And it knows the UV index data and so on. And it knows, you know, I can look up for my skin type, it'll tell me, you know, it's whatever it is 35 minutes to to sunburn if I don't put on sunscreen or a hat or whatever else. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, and I've, actually, I've been doing QA of that particular function now for probably uh, eight or nine years. And I can say that the only times I've gotten sunburned are the times when I thought I was smarter than it was.
0: Oh, it's <laughs> the same as when you try and go, you don't listen to Google Maps and you think, no, 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 this way home's always quicker. And it, it knows that there's the traffic the traffic jam there. And sure enough, you sat in the traffic kicking yourself for not listening to Google Maps earlier on. So, yeah, to any of the listeners who want to go and uh play some of these games wolframalpha at wolframalpha.com and just type in where is the international space station or type in someone's first name are there any other uh, cool things before we go oh gosh you, there are like lo- lots, of,
1: lots of things i mean there are lots of kind of uh, people always enjoy these estimate type things of you know how many uh uh you know how many soccer balls fit in a 747 or something these kinds of things or, or one that i was trying to figure out uh actually took two steps to do this was uh, if you took all the water in all the oceans on Earth and you rolled it all up into a ball, how big would that ball be? Um, and it's, uh, which is relevant because I was trying to understand something about the origin of water on the Earth. Oh, of
0: course it's, it was relevant. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's um, I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, the, the um, I mean, just to, to to fill in for a second, the, the, the main sort of intellectual thread of what, what I've tried to do for a long time is this thing we call often language, which is an attempt to make kind of a full-scale computational language, which means you know you have programming languages where you're kind of telling step at a time, you're telling a computer what to do. Uh, the goal of sort of our kind of computational language effort is to have a language to represent things in the world computationally. So in a in a standard programming language, you might have something that says, "This is the value of a variable," something like this. But uh, in in our language, in a sort of full computational language, you know, the town of Newcastle is an entity, and you can compute things about it, so I can say what 's the geodistance from Newcastle to Boston or something so it 's being able to have a a language for expressing things in the world in a way that you can compute from them and that 's um, i mean I think it's a i, I 've been working on this now well kind of for forty years actually altogether but but um, i 've only uh, I steadily understand you know that this is an important thing because well, it's it's the thing that people use The they use our products in, in um, well, lots of R&D and education kinds of settings. Our Products are really widely used to to figure out new, you know, to figure out new things. But but there are what's some um, what's interesting about this process. So just to tell a sort of historical tale, you know, there was a time uh, when people uh, like 400 years ago or so, people were doing math and they did math by writing everything out in words. So there wasn't a plus sign, there wasn't a times sign. That was only invented 400 years ago. That. Yeah, and so when once that had been invented, then things like algebra got invented and calculus got invented and so on. But while you were still kind of writing out all your math in words, that was very hard to invent. There wasn't a good way to kind of uh, express mathematical ideas in a kind of language that was convenient for people. Well, we're in the same situation with computational ideas. And that's kind of what we've been trying to solve is to create a computational language that allows one to sort of express computational ideas um, in a way that both computers can read and humans can read. Um, And this has been a pretty successful thing. And we're kind of seeing, you know, all these different fields you can call, you know, computational x where x is, you know, archaeology, zoology, whatever else, all these fields They need kind of a a computational language to express the computational ideas that come up in these fields, and that's kind of what I built. I
0: think you've touched on something there which the listeners may be thinking sounds a little bit esoteric, but when you actually think about it, the fact that the democratization of knowledge as it is, kind of in the way that Wikipedia, I suppose, works, in that you want to find something out and then Wikipedia gives it back to you. But the thing that you want to find out has to be searched for in an incredibly specific way in the right language for the correct thing that it is that you want it to do, and it will feed out a very narrow range of results based on what it is that you want. But obviously with Wolfram Language, taking natural language, converting that into computer code that then feeds back out something legible by a human who has no no training, no special understanding of this, and then gives them the answer that they wanted or potentially an answer that they didn't even know that they wanted but is the one that they wanted. Right. Um, and then I think, am I right in saying that you're looking to even step this up even further and allow lay people to create computer programs? I want a program that will do this sure. for me. Yeah, and yeah, right. you want to then be able to create natural language to compute a program to understand it, to then create a computer program to then do what the person wanted? Well,
1: here's the here's the issue. The issue is that natural language is really good. If you have a quick question you're asking, if you're trying to say, let me define how this really complicated thing works. That's not something where natural language is not particularly good at that. That's where computational language is really good. The trick is to have people be able to think in this computational language. And that's what happened, you know, when mathematical notation was invented and so on. People started being able to think in mathematical notation. They started being able to to actually, you know, think through the math that everybody's taught these days. You know, after 400 years, everybody gets taught this stuff. Mm -hmm. Probably too many people get taught some aspects of it. But, um, uh, you know, when it comes to computational language, you know, we're just at the very beginning of people learning this and learning it you know early in their lives and you know when they're 10 or 11 years old or whatever and um you know once they learn it then they get to take the sort of computational thinking that they might be doing and put it in some concrete form that both they can read and a computer can also go execute and that's a you know for for you know from a sort of big picture point of view in a sense what one is doing by creating what what I've been trying to do in creating this computational language. It's giving people a language in which to think computationally, which also happens to be a language that computers can execute. But it's one of the, the really important things, I think, is that it provides a way to kind of formulate your thoughts computationally. And that's something, you know, when we talk about making, you know, personal productivity, and so on, a lot of, I suspect, I can't necessarily trace all the all the connections, but a lot of what I end up doing, in trying to sort of formulate how I want to set up systems and so on, is informed by the fact that, you know, I've spent a large part of my life, sort of inventing this computational language to try and take sort of general thinking about things and make it computational. And once you've made it computational, you have it in a sort of more streamlined concrete form. So that for example, you can automate it and get a computer to do it. And that's kind of the um, uh, that, that's, uh, you know, that's a big piece of sort of the the intellectual effort and I suspect that, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, um, making the, uh, the sleep time clock or something, there are, you know, yes, that's very easy to do in the, in the language that we have. And, you know, it, um, uh, and it's also, but it's also something where probably certain aspects, I, I, you know, it's always a little bit hard to introspect and understand this, but certain aspects of how that works are probably because I thought about it in a sort of a computational way of this is how it, you know, this is how to structure it. And it's not just like, oh, well, I'd like to know kind of when I, you know, how long it was, you know, how long I've been asleep type thing. It's kind of there's a little probably a little bit more to it, which is a little bit hard to introspect and, and see through. But I think that's the um, there's uh, a mode I mean,
0: of a mode of, of uh, thinking that you have uh, internalized that is your work, which sounds really weird. Cause I, as a layperson, again, I don't I don't code. I, I don't understand how to code. But I would have thought that the uh, transfer from screen to real world would have been really limited. But what it actually appears is that you want to define things as clearly as possible, have a number of variables that you can control and then have as little friction and then bugs in the system. And then you've created a a lifestyle, a productivity, a work cadence out of that and all of these other solutions.
1: See, I I would think so. One of the the directions is creating computational contracts. So people, um, you know, blockchain people talk about smart contracts and so on. So the generalized version of that is computational contracts. That is, you know, I'm sure in your work life, it's full of contracts of one kind or another. And those contracts are written down in legalese. They're written in sort of a version of English that is a little bit closer to code because you're trying to be a little bit precise about, you know, this is what we mean exactly, et cetera. But, um, you know, what uh, what we will achieve with this sort of computational language direction, you will be able to write contracts in code. And that means that the, the importance of that is, you know, sometimes the contracts, as they're currently done, you know, you actually want some wiggle room in some place <laughs> or other. Yeah. But, you know, when when contracts are being executed automatically by machines and things, it's, uh, it's really, you can't really do that. And that's where, you know, if you can express sort of a human, uh, what you want to have happen, and you can express it, in computational language, turn it into a computational contract, have it automatically executable, then that's, uh, that's an interesting thing that, that makes, uh, makes, a uh, you know, you've talked about friction. That's a, that's a great friction reducer is to be able to say, no, it doesn't need a person in the middle of, you know, saying this is how this should work. Yeah. It's just automatic. You know, it's, it's, you have some contract that says, I don't know what, you know, based on the number of the you know, if you're promoting something, maybe you know, you have some PR firm or something based on the number of media mentions, they'll get, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, commission, some such other thing. And, And but then What does that mean computationally? Well, that means computationally, you have a program that says it's going to go search the web. It's going to have these criteria for deciding if it's a mention of this thing. And then there's just going to be some formula in there. And maybe it's going to use some machine learning classifier to decide if it was a positive sentiment mention or a negative sentiment mention. But in the end of it, it's just a piece of code and nobody gets to, you know, nobody has to go figure anything out. It's just, you know, the code runs. Somebody gets paid, you know, $100 a hundred dollars or something, or, yeah. or they don't, and um, it kind of makes the world a uh, uh, you know a more efficient place. There's and going to be
0: solicitors everywhere, all over the globe, just tearing their hair out at the sounds of this. Stephen, you're terri- you're terrifying everybody in law at the moment here.
1: You, you know what? It, it's it's going to be the other way. It's like the paperless office, right? When everybody said the paperless office, it's going to be you know nobody's going to have anything printed out and so on. At least for a while, at least for a few decades, there was a lot more paper around because. <laughs> What will happen in this case with computational contracts is there'll be a lot more contracts in the world and because there'll be a lot of things where there was no point in having, you know, right now is too much friction to have a contract, but, you know, it's like, uh, you know, many things that people do, there'll be a little contract that says, and things will happen automatically based on that or whatever else. And, you know, a lot of the I mean, I know from because we've interacted with a lot of law firms and so on that, you know, the the sort of big, more sophisticated ones are like, we want to get involved in this. We want to be writing computational contracts and we want to be the ones creating the intellectual property that is all those weird clauses that get added, you know, that's like, well, you know, we'll sell you all these clauses that will take care of you know what happens if it rains when you're doing some event or something
0: yeah of course because you're going to have to have someone who understands the law to interpret it into the programming language and that particular in the same way as i want to make i want to process a document i need a word processing piece of software you also require this recipe almost
1: yeah yeah right so yeah, this is that that's the um, anyway, this is the this is the kind of thing I, I think about for a living, so to speak. And um, you know, the the uh, these these questions about personal productivity are the are the way that I manage to get to think about stuff like that. And and maybe you know one of the things that I've learned, because I've been interested in you know mentioned personal analytics and so on, and I I've tended to store sort of everything I've I've done. And then the real question is, can you put together your personal history? Because there's you know I've got you know, millions of emails and so on. It's like, what is the arc of history that that corresponds to, so to speak? In other words, you can look at each individual one. And I wouldn't say it's a project of mine actually right now is to try and make more automation to finding these kinds of arcs of history from individual documents and so on. But the thing that is always interesting for me to understand, I think it's something that is, uh, uh, is an interesting introspection for people is when you've done something, can you figure out how you actually got to be able to do that thing? And so, for example, a lot of the stuff that I end up doing that ends up being not the typical thing that everybody else does, uh, you know, there's there's usually some whole chain of things. And, for example, this whole, you know, spending a lot of my life developing this computational language Um is probably the reason that I end up getting to do a bunch of personal productivity things. And I haven't quite joined all those dots sometimes doing this history and understanding, like, like, for example, the Wolfram Alpha project, Um, I had thought about doing that project when I was a kid, I thought this project is too hard. And I thought, among other things to be able to sort of, uh, you know, ingest knowledge about the world and so on and be able to answer questions, you're going to need a complete AI, you're going to need a brain like thing. And so that was you know i came back to it every so often but i kept on saying making a brain like things really hard then i did a bunch of basic science that i won't I mean, that that's has all kinds of implications but there's a there's a thing called the principle of computational equivalence that comes out from that and one of the implications of that is you know it's a piece of basic science and sort of philosophy of science but one of the implications is there's no kind of bright line between intelligence and mere computation and so that sort of philosophical point made me realize, gosh, if I'm taking that seriously, then this thing that I now call Wolfram Alpha, that I've sort of wondered, could it be built? Well, if I take my own theory seriously, then yes, it could be built. And so, so then I started building it, but it took, you know, in a sense, a very circuitous route, because it takes understanding this quite philosophical thing to realize that yes, actually, you know, if I know what I'm talking about, about that philosophical thing, then, uh, it's um, you know, then I, then I should be able to build this practical thing. I get okay. uh, you. Well, probably- it, needs,
0: it needs to it needs to at least be uh, able to exist in concept before it can exist in reality, right? Most things get constrained by reality. People's dreams tend to be bigger than their achievements, and the same thing goes for for most stuff. But yeah, if you can. If you've got the backup that you, as you've alluded to there, and I will link to some of the blog posts which have been illuminating to me, uh, which for the listeners who want to find out a little bit more about uh, your philosophy on that but Stephen, I, i'm uh, aware that you are an incredibly busy man and i do want to let you go yes, before you before, before, see we've got you in trouble and there's going to be emails pinging all over and your assistance it'll have been automated at least um yes
1: it has been i've been i've <laughs> been getting a bunch of pings and i know i'm supposed to start a live streamed uh, design review meeting I'm so, so sorry. go see the, the the beginning of that will be late but amazing
0: it's okay. um final thing where can people find you online if they want to find out more uh There we go. That's all that we need. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, interesting stuff. Thanks a lot.